the worldview that um, most of us just take for granted, that says that <clears throat> humans are separate from nature, that says nature is a machine, some of those basic things, is not only dangerous and driving our civilization like towards the precipice, but it's just plain wrong. How can technology be developed actually in the service of life rather than trying to either conquer or destroy life? And so we're training our kids to basically be kind of soldiers, if you will, of this ongoing battle um, that our modern civilization has against nature and against human well-being. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's contributor guest is Jeremy Lent. Jeremy was described by Guardian journalist George Monbiot as one of the greatest thinkers of our age. He's an author, a speaker, and his work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis, and he explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. This is part of our series of the past few episodes of talking with thinkers and doers who are focusing specifically on that life affirmation, the idea that we should move beyond humanism towards post-humanism, perhaps, less anthropocentric views of the world where the binary between I, you, us, them, humans, the planet, other living species is really broken down and we consider ourselves to be part of the whole. This is particularly important for education because we are thinking about moving together as a collective towards purpose and giving students purpose in their thinking and their action. One of the things that uh, I didn't address with Jeremy in this conversation, but that doesn't matter because there's so much that's around it, is this concept of student-centered and how perhaps we need to move beyond student-centered education because student-centered takes us towards divergent thinking uh, and is certainly a fantastic step away from the chalk talk, away from being imposed a curriculum, and certainly giving students the choice to investigate what they want, think how they'd like, be able to explore what they want to produce in the way they would like is a massive step forward. But we need to think about this convergent thinking of a common purpose. That is the only way, in my opinion, we will go about breaking down the binary between, as I said, us, them, you, me, and and, uh, humans and the planet, and think about ways to solve these huge problems like climate crisis, like socioeconomic injustice, like the way we treat each other, and I mean that within our species and others. What's particularly interesting about Jeremy is the way that he takes old wisdom and modern uh, knowledge and, and philosophies and brings them together. He considers himself to be an author and an integrator. He's got a new book that's about to come out called The Women of Meaning. And I hope you'll find this conversation particularly interesting as we think about how schools develop students, how they uh, prepare them for a life of consumption uh, and how it is uh, perhaps the responsibility of some of us uh, who uh, would like to resist this movement to think of different realities uh, moving forward. So I'll leave space for my conversation with Jeremy. So hi, Jeremy. Uh, really excited to have you on our podcast. I uh, wanted to really talk to you uh, because I read the article that you wrote in Yes Magazine, uh, and that was uh, incredibly stimulating for me um, in terms of the way it moved my thinking. And I was quite keen as I, as I dug around and found out a little bit more about your background uh, to hear about how you see yourself as, as a connector and as someone who really brings back the, the, the old wisdoms, I guess, from, from thousands of years or maybe the things that have been around forever. Uh, I don't know if the word old is the case, uh, but just get a feel from you um, about where you are, um, uh, what your thinking is, and really your connections maybe to, to the world of education um, and, mm-hmm. and see how that, how mm-hmm. that could, could build. So the first question I'll ask is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Okay, great. Well, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be talking with you, Benjamin, and thanks for inviting me on your podcast. And um, well, so let me just go one at a time. Uh, who who am I? Uh, well, I actually call myself an author and integrator, um, and the reason for that is that uh, I see my work in the world as actually trying to connect up things that our society that's based a lot on separation and has told us are completely separate. And so that might be things like science and spirituality, or, or it might be things like um, cognitive understanding of things and, and embodied understanding. And also it's um, 
modern ways of finding knowledge and ancient ways, traditional wisdom, and then and connecting up the West and, and, and the East and in different ways of making sense of things. So in all these cases, I view myself as kind of weaving um, bodies of knowledge, wisdom, and, di and disciplines in a way that um, I think can create a different kind of meaning making, a different way of people making sense of the world, and hopefully, ultimately, um, and allowing our society to do that. So that's that's who I see myself as. Well, well that's wonderful, and and really, what what resonates with me is it is, it is this connection between mind and, and and body and heart and, and hands and the community and and that kind of feeling about when we look about learning and, and also. Um, uh, this idea of, of, of seeing connecting to, to to different ways of thinking and the modernity and uh, and you know maybe some of the things that people have been talking about for thousands of years. But the first thing I'd like right. to ask before we pick that up is, um, and I ask this of all our guests, so we can have a common definition because that's you know people talk about learning all the time, but we don't always have a shared understanding. So how would you define learning? Yeah, well, actually, the the concept of learning is something that I talk about. Um, uh, in some detail in this new book that um, is just about to be published, The Web of Meaning. Um, <clears throat> and the way that I would actually define learning is basically um, the process of making connections between things and <clears throat> remembering, the, or as maybe I should say making new connections between things and remembering those connections for future use. Um, and in a sense, to me, that's what learning is. And what I find so fascinating, and I kind of delve into in the book, is that we tend to think of learning as something that um, mostly like kind of humans do. And, and we do it through our sort of you know, brains, we're taught things. Um, and maybe <clears throat> some people might grudgingly uh, accept that maybe some um, high functioning mammals also learn and, um, you know, Ratchelor and how to move through a maze or whatever it might be. Um, but they figure that, well, I, they're doing like what humans do, but it's not, you know, just kind of a smaller level or whatever. But what's so fascinating is um, that actually biologists have uh, now begun to understand and describe learns, um, even can learn. And um, that's something I'd be happy to explore with you if you're if you're curious. But so and and but it's all about fundamentally, in my view, um, making new connections and then remembering them for future use. So tell us more about that. Yeah, let's explore this. Uh, it's it's a fascinating concept because you're right. We 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 tend to think about humans, and yes, we know that maybe octopi learn. They know there there is that. Uh, uh, quite a bit on, on how intelligent they are or, or animals, but but tell us more about, about how that might happen also in, 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 in other aspects in, in the plant world and, and, and so yeah. forth. Yeah, well, I think to, to unpack that idea, <clears throat> one of the most important things to get our heads around um, <clears throat> and is a concept very related to learning, which is intelligence. And um, something that I explore in some detail in the book is the difference between what I call conceptual and animate intelligence. And, and again, if we think from a sort of mainstream perspective, in generally people, uh, if you're they're asked what is intelligence, they'll look at things like IQ. You're right, you know, the um, intelligence is something, I mean, the classic definition of intelligence is something to do with um, figuring out how to solve problems and um, when faced with new um, uh, you know, un uncertain environments or, or whatever. And <clears throat> IQ is meant to be this great test of that. And so intelligence is, and there's this concept of general intelligence, which um, is this sort of abstraction of all the different sort of IQ problems, all the capabilities. Um, but this is all based on our the predefined belief, which ultimately comes from Descartes and uh, or, or whatever it is, that what it is that our sort of existence is really all about our thinking, our cognitive conceptualizing capability. So humans have basically defined intelligence from what they excel at, and then defined out any kind of intelligence that doesn't involve that human conceptualizing way of thinking. <clears throat> but actually, if you look 
and this is something that uh, biologists in recent decades have begun to understand. If you look at any other non-human creature, you find, in addition to some level of that conceptual intelligence and some, that you find this deep intelligence in nature that we see in um, not just mammals, but we see in actually in plants. And it turns out that plants have about 13 to 15 different senses. And they're using those senses all the time, things we can't even conceive of, sensing chemicals or gravity fields, whatever these things might be. And they integrate them in a way that, of course, they don't use a brain. Um, there is no brain in a plant. There's no separate organ. And that's why people have tended to see plants as being dumb. You know, they just kind of sit there. Um, <clears throat> but actually, they're through an integrated, uh, distributed intelligence, a little bit like the internet um, we can think of, uh, a plant is capable of making complex decisions and actually communicating with others, um, other entities. And there's even this notion of uh, the wood wide web where biologists have discovered that trees in a forest actually communicate with each other through mycorrhizal networks. And what's even more incredible for those of us who haven't like studied this is cell and cellular biologists have studied just the, in, the workings of just every individual tiny microscopic cell of which we have like 40 trillion in our bodies. And they find that every one of those is capable of its own incredible intelligence, better than any um, supercomputer can do, of multiple ways of connecting uh, with things out there in the world, like um, doing all kinds of complex jobs and work within its own um, cellular uh, parameters. And doing that in a way <clears throat> at incredible speeds, doing it in a way that optimizes for the cell and for the entity of which it's part. So this is what animate intelligence is. Um, and in, a, in every case, uh, we discovered through evolution that the way that got formed was um, nature learning how to solve a problem, um, <clears throat> DNA and cellular expression, all that kind of stuff, and then remembering it. And it remembers it in the DNA of the organism, um, and not just in the DNA of the organism, but also in the way that the organism relates to other aspects of itself and others in its community. And that's how uh, biologists have now begun to realize that actually within an ecosystem, an ecosystem actually learns based on the past behavior through making connections that then get used when new situations arise in the ecosystem that have happened maybe before. And what I find fascinating here, and, and, uh, and as I mentioned before we hit record, is a lot of the people who listen are, are in the education space. And, and one of the, the, the issues, problems, or, or, or complexities about school is that you're, you're being tested all the time or assessed individually. Right. But if we take what you're saying to its next level, actually, there's a social intelligence there, which you know, I don't want to confuse with emotional intelligence or anything like that, but, but a social intelligence of a network between people that can learn from itself, which takes the idea of assessing individuals, it, it makes it a little bit, I mean, it's, it's very limiting, isn't it? That is completely right. And I think that, again, shows how our Western view of just thinking of intelligence as being IQ-based, testable kind of faculty is so limited and actually um, really prevents the true um, integrated growth of um, basically anybody who has to go through that kind of system. Something that is so fascinating to your point, in fact, is <clears throat> um, there's um, an anthropologist, uh, her name is Pamela Stone, who talks about how I'm um, studying the, um, she, she lived with the Inuits um, in, the, uh, in the far north. And says how they, they have a word called ihuma, which is kind of their version of intelligence. But she, I love the, I, I love the description she gives of it. Now, if, she, if you don't mind, I'll just read um, a, a sentence to you because it, it really captures this whole thing. It, and ihuma um, is kind of, it, it includes skills like she says, solving a puzzle, fixing a broken snowmobile, teaching a baby to walk, regularly getting to work on time, knowing how and where to set fishing nets, making others feel comfortable, and especially being able to avoid conflict. So that's the an Inuit version of intelligence, completely different from the way we think about it. And it includes social intelligence, emotional intelligence, 
and every other kind. And it's, it gets closer to that sense of animate intelligence that we see in nature, that way of relating to things as, they, as definitions come up, relating to them in the optimal way. And, and of course, then there's the interspecies networks that when we go out in nature, uh, we, we get such a, a, a buzz from it and energy. People go out, oh, let's go take a walk when we want to clear our heads and get, get some kind of thinking going in our minds. Right. That's true. And I think that that's once we begin to recognize as humans that we have not just conceptual, but also animate intelligence, it becomes like a gateway for us to open up to exactly that kind of connectedness that we're talking about. Once we, <clears throat> we look at a tree, if we're walking in a forest, and we recognize this tree is actually perceiving, it's sentient. It's actually right now talking with other trees. If it's in a forest with a mycorrhizal network, a fungal network in the, in the ground, it's sensing all these things. And even though we can't know it, that tree is, is um, most likely sensing that we're there, aware of that, and if you do touch it, become like you know what people might disparagingly refer to as a tree hugger or whatever, well, you, you might actually be really connecting with it in ways that our conceptual intelligence may not really perceive. You know, I mean, people might say, oh, I can hear the tree speak to me or whatever, and people might scoff and, and whatever. But the point is that these connections are happening way below the symbolic um, verbal level, but they're happening in this deeper level of animate intelligence. And most people will have felt that, even though they might not necessarily have recognized that and been conscious of it. And, and, and right. you speak about scoffing, but that's most likely, I mean, it's uh, because people, they, they, they have a narrative that they believe, a story, like you said, about from Descartes to the time of the humanists and, and, and that we have a brain and that everything else is connected. How, how do we rewrite that narrative? How, how do we get people to, to be more open to different stories about, about animate intelligence? Yes, well, that is a great question. And, and I mean, for me personally, um, I do that through my writing and, and this new book, The Web of Meaning, um, is actually my attempt, a, re, a potential rewriting of that narrative. But I think each of us <clears throat> can rewrite it in different ways. Um, and I think oftentimes it begins with a couple of, of processes to begin with. The first is connecting with that animate intelligence in ourselves, just like we talked about. And that can be done through all kinds of modalities, whether it can be meditation or dance or energy practices like Qigong or Tai Chi, whatever they might be, or, and, and anything like that. Um, and recognizing that and, and giving that the respect, realizing that that's part of ourselves is every bit as important as our thinking brains in spite of what Descartes might have told us, cogito ergo sum sort of thing, I think, therefore I am. It's actually more like I breathe or I feel, therefore I am. But <clears throat> then the other thing we can do is try to develop a capacity to look at what our mainstream media and narratives tell us. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you read a book, every time, not every time, but most of the time when you just read um, quasi-scientific articles, they, which still, which looks like it's science, but actually oftentimes it's just relying on outmoded um, uh, parameters. And begin to recognize that there are certain myths that we take for granted. And myths like nature is a machine, or myths like humans are completely separate from nature, or that nature exists as a resource for humans to exploit to the maximum possible. Or, or like uh, another myth is that technology always sol yeah, is the, um, offers us the solution to a problem rather than any other approach. So beginning to recognize that these are actually myths of our modern culture. And, and when they're spoken, and they're often not spoken in that explicit way, but the things that are being said, they're, they're, they're implicit in them, to call on that when, you, when talking with people and to basically have the courage to move to a deeper level in, in conversation um, and ask people some of these deeper questions to get them to think about things in different ways. And another one of those myths might be that GDP growth is what we're looking at. And that's what makes you know, right. great governments and, and successful governments, right? I mean, we look at the Eurozone exactly. with its flat movements. Um, media, politicians, schools, I mean, these are, these are seemingly immovable systemic behemoths. Um, 
is it is it a question of little by little? Is it a question of just breaking off and doing our own thing? How does that work? Um, how how do you see the, the 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 shorter and longer term future? Yes. Well, when I <clears throat> um, think about these things, I often use a a kind of a systems understanding to think about things. Um, for me, what's been very helpful is really developing uh, an understanding of the, the systems view of looking at whether it's life or complex societies, whatever they might be. And a systems understanding <clears throat> looks at any kind of complex system, um, whether it's any living system or our society. And it recognizes that things connect with each other in non-linear ways, which means that they're not actually predictable. There's so many different connections always going on with feedback loops and <clears throat> different ways in which one thing causes the other to get affected. You can't kind of predict where things are going. And another hugely important element of complex systems is that all the different parts of a system um, affect what the whole system is. And at the same time, the system as a whole is affecting all the different parts. And so that's a little bit of theory to get to answer your question, because we can think of ourselves and what we're doing as really um, tiny little parts of this much, much bigger system. <clears throat> like the, and we can think of it in different ways. We can either think of parts of um, trying to change the system that we're in, the system that's causing a lot of destruction of the natural world and is unsustainable. Or we can also think of ourselves really as being part of the system of transformation. But those of us who see some of these things and want to, want to really get involved in deep transformation. But in each case, what we recognize is that while our part might seem to be so small to be almost insignificant, we, we are part of much bigger systemic-wide sh uh, shifts and shifts that are going on. And we never know which of those little links is the one that then um, just happens to affect some big node in the network, which then has multiple ramifications we can't even think about. So it takes a, a little bit of faith to understand that. But it, if once we get that kind of sense of how we're part of this much bigger system, it enables us to realize that the best thing we can do is whatever it is that's causing us to be passionate about it and do that part, even if it seems like it's not actually in, in itself going to have the transformative capability that, um, that we want. And just as importantly, so the, it's pretty much exactly what you're doing by doing a, a podcast or something like this, is looking at how we can amplify the actual connections and the different moves that others around us are doing that are part of also that movement towards transformation. So I think um, realizing that we're part of something bigger, doing our, our own approach, um, really giving ourselves to it, and looking at how we can amplify other work around us is really key elements there. And I really appreciate what you're saying because you're looking at it, as you mentioned, from a theoretical level, the, the bigger you know, uh, concepts of how, how things work and, and, and in that system. But, but this is also fantastic advice for anyone um, who, who's in a classroom, who's, who's in uh, any kind of space, to be able to really take those actions and, 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 and not feel like sometimes we do like, oh, I'm just one person, uh, and, and be able to, to maybe create experiences for other people to, to have those doors open. Yes, <clears throat> I think that's right. And how would you see that, for instance, in schools, or how, how have you observed in schools uh, any any stories, any successes that that this might have um, that that this might inspire some some of the folks who who listen? Well, I think um, one thing that comes from everything I'm I'm talking about is the sense that um, embodied learning uh, is just as important, maybe even more important than the, the cognitive conceptual learning. Because um, you know, at some point, these uh, cognitive lessons get drummed into a kid's brain. But those deeper embodied, um, embodied lessons are the ones that actually affect the deeply felt sense um, that uh, kids, as they grow to be older, have as to who they are and what really matters. Um, and those are the things that ultimately will lead them to um, make a difference in life, either uh, either sort of give up on trying to do good and just kind of join the system and be as successful as they can, whatever it might be, um, or make a difference 
to really care and want to try to move towards a life-affirming future. So I think that the deeper the connections can be made um, <clears throat> and that the more uh, any educator um, like allows the kids to feel a sense of passion about what they're doing, not to feel um, sort of knocked down, not to feel bad about failing some course or whatever it might be, but to actually feel passionate and care about something that really brings them alive. I think that's the best way in which we can bring our kids to actually become the fullest uh, people as they grow older. And, and as they grow older, this, this would continue as well, right? In terms of, of being able to tap into those passions. Um, yes. T- tell, us, tell us a bit about your book. So Web of Meaning, it's, it's, it's going to come out. Um, what, what's the story behind the book? What, what, what are some of the parts there that, that, are, that are going to provoke our thinking and, and our feeling? Yeah, well, what the, what the book basically is saying is that the worldview that um, most of us just take for granted, um, that says that humans are separate from nature, that says nature is a machine, some of those basic things, is not only dangerous and driving our civilization like towards the precipice, but it's just plain wrong. That that's actually a worldview that got developed mostly in the 17th century um, among like a small group of white, um, highly educated males who did a, an amazing job. This is not to disparage what they did. They were um, looking at centuries before them of um, the Christian hegemony and um, irrational thinking. And they were trying to break through that and, and actually use reason to come up with new ways of making sense of things. Great stuff that they did and something to be um, applauded. But these ideas um, have been ossified a lot of the time over the last few hundred years in Western thought. And now modern science shows us that actually this kind of worldview of separateness is actually invalid that there's actually a worldview of connectedness that we see in scientific studies like systems science and complexity science and evolutionary biology and cognitive science. And what they're finding out about life and the way that the universe itself works points to the same underlying wisdom that traditions around the world have been telling us for millennia, whether it's indigenous knowledge or Buddhism or Taoism. And they, in their different ways, have pointed to a, a, a deep recognition of connectedness and explored the moral and ethical and, and just the and human implications of that connectedness. So what I'm doing in this book is tying in the findings of modern science about this connected worldview with some of the greatest insights from our great wisdom traditions to help to create really a different kind of worldview, a worldview of integration that could lead society into a more sustainable path in the future. And so we're talking about ideas that can range anywhere from Buddhism, uh, you know, 2,500 years ago, a little bit, little bit further on, most likely as well, and bringing them now. So there is that line of continuity. How does technology fit in here in terms of the way we interact with technology? And I don't want to talk about, you know, just like, I'm talking like big technology, technological shifts. How would that help us or hinder us? Where are the switch points and dangers? Because if we're looking at biotech, uh, th- th- there's nothing that's going to affect our lives more than, than, than the changes we can do in biotech. I, I keep right. thinking of, um, uh, who was it? Was it Th- um, Theseus's ship in, over Athens, right? He, he held his ship in Athens and they ended up changing the planks and every, eventually every single plank was new, but it was still the same ship. But they could probably do that with our bodies soon enough. How, how does the wisdom of, of, of the ages connect with some of the biotech changes that are going on and our desires to be, as, um, as uh, Yuval Harari said, um, you know, immortal or amortal? Yes, well, I think that a lot of the technology that we kind of take for granted in our lives right now um, is technology that's driven from that that worldview that I was describing, the worldview of like conquering nature and seeing nature basically as a machine. And of course, biotech, um, genetic engineering, uh, and even the ideas like geoengineering as a response to climate breakdown 
each of these um, basically start with this kind of reality that nature is actually a very complicated machine. And that as um, using our technology, we can actually fix that machine or else make it do whatever we, we um, <clears throat> ideas are plain uh, ontologically utterly misguided. So somebody like Raymond Kurzweil, for example, who's this um, uh, leading thinker about the, the singularity being close. And he's one of the, he's actually a senior executive at Google, um, but he's um, written a lot about how very soon because of the rate of progress, we should be able to upload our minds to the cloud. Just basically, you know, get rid of the body as this kind of bad um, wetware and just download the mind to a new body so we can sort of all become immortal in the cloud, or at least those who are wealthy enough to afford it or whatever it might be. And um, that's just plain bunk because it's based on this dualistic conception of what a human being is, the sense that somehow our minds are utterly different from the bodies, just the same way that a, um, a software code can be <clears throat> um, coded into different machines. And the machine is one thing and the software is the other. And that's not the way humans work. And that, that never will be. So that's just plain wrong. But of course, uh, um, biotech, genetic engineering, some of these uh, approaches to engineering life, incredibly powerful. Um, and they're based on valid conceptions in terms of they, you know, they recognize what they're doing. But the danger is that they still have this fundamental divide between humans and the natural world. And their sense is that what they're trying to do is use technology as an engineering problem to optimize what they want to do. And I'm very afraid that when that technology is developed in our capitalist system, where basically new technologies rise and whatever good intentions people might have, as soon as um, it gets to be pulled into some investment basis, and then you have to meet shareholder returns and grow whatever it is. Um, these technologies um, ultimately, inevitably, will be used to actually further destroy life on Earth as we as we know it, and actually uh, to turn humans themselves into more like commodities and um, to maximize profits for these systems. Just in the same way that um, it's becoming increasingly clear, companies like Facebook or Google. Um, actually see each of us um, as an essentially commodities. And the more they can use the technology to get deep within our, uh, our embodied uh, hormones and affect those so that we can create more advertising dollars for them, they'll go, they'll go and do that. So I think that we have to really ask ourselves, how can technology be developed actually in the service of life rather than trying to either conquer or destroy life? That's a very um, unusual question to ask in the technology world. Um, and it doesn't mean that it, it's not being asked, but it mean, it's like, that's the shift we, we need to do. And I think that would lead to very different approaches to technology. And what you're saying really resonates with me, and I'm thinking about it. If we're talking about this biotech, data tech, um, uh, you know, changes as, as the fourth industrial revolution, as people have said, as the World Economic Forum has said, the first, the second, the third have been okay. The second, maybe not so great for a lot of people and the environment and so forth. But but you know, we don't think of that necessarily. I mean, that's where history has taken us. But I think a lot about what happens in schools, where now places like the you know UNESCO and and, and the World Economic Forum are saying kids need to have different skills for the new economy. But what I'm, I'm hearing from you, the technology that we need to put in service of life, I'm also connecting that to these ideas of skills for the new economy. The skills are great, but it's how you apply them. And it might not necessarily be the best thing to put it for the new economy. Maybe those skills could be for, for, for the service of life. So there's a lot of parallels here. And again, switch points in terms of what we do with these new approaches to thinking and doing. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. And um, I would put to you this question as to um, what are the skills that we can actually be best offering children as they're growing up? Um, and this whole notion, as you say, that's so dominant around the world is like the kind of STEM type education. You know, we've got to um, invest 
and kids need to understand how to like work technology in the right way. And often these are done with the best of intentions. Like, you know, let's um, get girls to learn technology as much as, as much as the boys and try to get more gender balance, great. But the whole point about this is that what we're really doing is creating um, a new generation of people not to actually and find well-being within themselves, not to contribute to a society that can be as healthy as possible, but to actually be part of this gigantic growth-oriented corporate capitalist system. And what we're really saying to, to people, uh, to the kids as, they, as, as we're teaching them to do this is like, look, this system is so big, the best thing you can do is learn how you can be um, a little fit into that system by being effective in what it values, which is technological capabilities, managerial capabilities, whatever that might be. Um, and do that because that is the way that you'll get to be powerful, to have more status, to get wealth. And so we're training our kids to basically be kind of soldiers, if you will, of this ongoing battle um, that our modern civilization has against nature and against human well-being. Because if we look at human well-being, um, the what actually drives well-being is not the status and not the hard work um, <clears throat> for some other um, company or whatever, or, or whatever that might be. Um, but what actually drives well-being is a sense of connectedness with oneself. Um, connectedness with community, connectedness with the natural world, and above all, a sense of meaning and purpose. Intrinsic doing, a sense that it has value, not because somebody pays us for it, or not because it might get um, a million hits on um, Facebook, or whatever that might be, but it has value because the value is felt within us, because we are actually doing something that is meaningful to us as part of something bigger. Now, th those are also skills that can be taught to kids to actually uh, move towards well-being, but they're a very different set of skills than learning basically how to code or you know, how to manage a group of coders under you or whatever that might be. And I find it, you know, I'm going to connect it to, to what you said earlier about that social intelligence, the network, because if we have a purpose individually, how much stronger are we when we have purpose as a, as a community, whatever that, that looks like community, it could be a virtual community uh, where we interact with, like right now we're interacting. Um, one of the things also that strikes me here is that a lot of talk in, the, in education right now is, oh, you know, trying to teach uh, or, or focusing on, on numeracy and literacy and putting kids in, in these classes, that's uh, uh, industrial revolution kind of thinking and we need to move beyond, which is great. Uh, and then they say things like, uh, yeah, competencies, like you said, you know, we need to manage, we need to have collaboration, creativity which is also great, but at the end of the day, just like you said, if we take those skills and we just apply them to, to, to fields that just contribute to the capitalist system, we're just doing the same thing. We're just feeding the, the money machine here. Um, and, and, and it goes beyond with that purpose thing. That's really the key to apply those skills towards something rather than just have the skills. That, that is, is quite right. And so, you know, it might be a hard thing for an educator to actually consider but I think that the real deep question <clears throat> that has to be asked is if you are <clears throat> teaching these skills to the kids and it seems like you're doing everything right and they're doing well in their grades, you have to ask yourself, are you really acting in their true long-term well-being? Are you helping them to actually live full, wholesome, happy lives? Or are you actually kind of hurting them, pushing them towards um, just being another uh, person there on the uh, what's called the hedonic treadmill, like this treadmill where you think you need you needs the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and actually you, you end up living empty lives um, and basically get the life sucked out of you by that corporate machine that is using you as a raw material to ultimately make more money for those billionaire shareholders. And then you have to have your kids go to the right schools. Exactly. So you just keep going, keep doing it from one generation to the next. Exactly. And that brings us back to Buddhism, right? This idea of, of the craving, the desire, the, the moving towards, you know, the, this inability to fulfill our desires uh, forever and how, how those are impermanent. That, that's quite right. And there's, there's this um, key foundational concept in Buddhism, uh, which, is called, which is called dukkha 
which basically refers to a sense of inset and unsatisfactoriness, a sense of, of wanting more. And sometimes people will just translate dukkha as being suffering, which is not a bad translation, but it's so much more, so much both like less and more than that, because dukkha can be just this general sense of unease, like not quite being comfortable or um, getting something and then wanting the next thing right away. And it, or it can be a very deep and profound sense of alienation and suffering. So it's the whole spectrum of um, basically dissatisfaction with the here and now, with the present, with like being who I am um, at any given moment and being and loving um, who I am at any given moment. And that's kind of what dukkha is. And in a way, I mean, I, not even in, in a way, I mean, quite categorically, um, our modern consumer system is essentially designed to maximize dukkha in people. It's like, rather than it being like, oh, we've had so much progress, we have a system that offers human happiness. We have a system that's actually designed to make people as dissatisfied as possible, as quickly as possible with whatever they get, so that they'll just go driven to go spend more and, and, as, and work harder so they can then buy more, so they can like then feel the need to work harder and buy more still until they basically empty out their kind of life spirit. Um, and maybe they end up having wealth and having some, uh, some fancy house or whatever it might be and flying around the world, or maybe they don't. But in, both in each case, they end up losing their core um, sense of well-being by having been sort of taken over by that corporate dukkha machine. And, and let's, let's make no, no confusion about this. Schools are the first step to getting people, humans, uh, incorporated into this, into this machine. Exactly. Essentially, our mainstream kind of school systems are, are really training kids um, to, be, to become like sort of consumer raw material for the, the big corporations and training them to essentially become foot soldiers to destroy life and to destroy the well-being of others around them. Even though um, the superficially we're being told that they're doing the opposite, that's what they're actually doing. And it's a hard um, to really look at that deeply. Yeah, it might be difficult to accept, but I think when we look at those deeper questions, it opens the possibility to looking at how we can transform education, transform the values that get imparted, and actually help to um, bring up new generations that ask the right questions, new generations that actually um, can develop the faculty of imagination and, and actually open up to new possibilities rather than closing their minds to fit into what they're expected. And one of the things that I found very interesting, just looking around, talking to, to my wife, Charlotte, who's, uh, who's doing her ed doc on uh, getting schools to be less uh, anthropocentric uh, and, and working with animals in schools. Um, but she pointed out to me something that now that she has, it's, it's completely obvious that the, 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 the UN Sustainable Development Goals, there's 17 of them. I think it's something like 13 are very human-centered and only three or four are, are, are more in terms of the natural world. And, and that, when schools say, oh, we're going to be sustainable, we've got the SDGs in it, actually still keeps us in that human realm. So even when they're using the language, it's about, well, actually, what is the action? Is it misguided? Does it make sense? Is it, does it go far enough? You're completely right. <clears throat> and in fact, um, one of the sustainable development goals um, actually talks about how we need to find ourselves um, being part of a continually growing global economy. <clears throat> which is some, there's this concept people have of, oh, we can do find some sort of green growth, use technology to keep growing infinitely, indefinitely. And it's just been shown to be a myth. So <clears throat> there within even the UN Sustainable Development Goals is one of these myths of our current worldview that is leading us really to ecological destruction. And that really needs to be changed um, more than any other, but completely true about this anthropocentric um, <clears throat> approach. And I think, um, one of the things that we need to look at is the question to which um, our society has within it, deeply within its DNA, this sense of um, what's sometimes uh, called human supremacy, this kind of belief um, that humans are naturally better 
than the rest of nature. In fact, there's not even a, an, a question, not even a comparison is even asked. And that nature is there just as a resource for humans to do whatever we want. And so <clears throat> within that, some people, and maybe in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you'll see this kind of thing, like nature is a, um, something we want around us because it makes us feel happier and we need it for sustainable resources so we can all eat better and all those obvious things. So there can be a more enlightened view of nature within that human supremacy versus let's just blow it all away like the fossil fuel industry might say. But even so, it's still starting from this basis that nature exists just to serve human needs. And when we shift that and you start asking about what does life want, when we start to go back to what we were talking earlier to our own animate intelligence and start to realize that actually we're part of life. And we start asking, what does life want from us? What does life want from humanity rather than how can humanity exploit the rest of life to the best of our capabilities? Things look very different. And all of a sudden you come up in terms of politics with things like looking at the rights of nature uh, or looking at um, finding personhood for river ecosystems or and different ways of looking at things that I'm really undermine, like transform that basis. And, and uh, the fact that in the United States, corporations are treated as human beings means that we've already paved the way for this to happen. So there should be no resistance to it. It's law. Um... Well, that's the, the great irony that um, some, somebody who, who is a person like a chimpanzee or an elephant is not considered a legal person, but um, these corporations, these abstract entities designed to basically devastate the world and to make as much money as possible, as fast as possible, and to keep accelerating that as much as it can. Um, these, these things, if they were people, they would have to be considered psychopaths because only a psychopath, um, you know, we know the definition of a psychopath is somebody who just has one single goal at the expense of everything else, who has absolutely zero empathy, zero sense of connection with others, and will do anything, will look nice and get friendly with people and do all the kind of right things to become powerful, just to win whatever that goal is that psychopath has. That defines a corporation. So we, we basically legally made these psychopaths um, persons and the actual living beings around us um, are not, you know, have, we have to like be struggling just to give them any kind of say in the legal system. Listen, Jeremy, I, re I really want to thank you for, for your time. Uh, I think it's been so enriching and, and uh, it's, it's exactly the conversation, I think, or, or your con you know, the, the, the words that I think people need to listen to to move beyond this, this humanist perspective, this anthropocentric perspective, this, this connection with nature, sp specifically in schools where so much emphasis is on scores, on, on trying to get to the right university, and, and, and like we said, on, on preparing people for this consumer world. I, I want to I end this by asking, is there anything that, that you would like to, to say, anything about, about what you're doing, what you've been thinking about, what, what you're going to do? It's a little bit the et cetera section, but I want to make sure to know what, what lies in your future. Oh, yeah. Well, um, and really come back to your, your first question about um, who am I and what is it? How do I want to make a difference in the world? And um, well, for me, um, basically, um, a lot of the things that I've been talking about in this in this uh, conversation right now are things that I only came to myself in a process, uh, like a 10 to 15 year process where I went through my own sort of existential uh, breakdown, if you will. I'd been a successful entrepreneur. I'd been like the, a paragon of that uh, capitalist marketplace world that um, I've been I've been criticizing, um, and I and things fell apart for me personally. And I tried to understand where meaning actually comes from, uh, which has led me to write this book along with the previous book I wrote called The Patterning Instinct, which was more of a his, historical assessment of humanity's search for meaning. But where I'm going in the future. Um, is actually I'm very inspired and excited by this vision um, of what many uh, increasing numbers of people around the world are calling an ecological civilization. Um, similar to this article that um, I, know, I know you said you, you read in Yes Magazine. And it's this vision of what it would look like if we recognized all the things that we've been talking about in this conversation. And as a society, we said we need to 
and shift the operating system of our civilization from one that is wealth-based to one that's actually life-based, one that's life-affirming, and that's based on the principles that have made ecosystems survive um, richly and resiliently for millions of years. And to explore what that actually means in real terms, um, and then actually look at the pathways that um, great you know, pioneers of this kind of way of thinking are already doing to lead us towards this vision of a, a real, of, of a potential flourishing future for humanity on a vibrant living earth. Which is something that we need in terms of, of course, the planet, the way we treat each other, that we treat other, other animals. It's, it's, it's a complete shift. It's a revolutionary shift. I mean, no less than, than, than the French Revolution and the agricultural revolution. I, I, I think that's true. I think it's a shift as big as the agricultural revolution. It would transform the very basis of the ways in which humans make sense of their lives, relate to each other, and relate to the earth. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, uh, how can people get a hold of you? Oh, well, simplest way is just going to my author website, which is just jeremylent.com, all one word, J-E-R-E-M-Y-L-E-N-T. And um, there you can um, see all the work I'm doing and, um, and, yeah, and also just reach out and um, e email me at the address of anyone who wants to get in touch. So it's right there. Thank you. Take care then. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. I'm so happy that you joined us. Hopefully you enjoyed our conversation with Jeremy. Uh, I must admit, I forgot to ask him what he's reading. That's something that I wanted to uh, do with all our contributor guests. But uh, hopefully, Jeremy, if um, you can, uh, send us a note and let us know what you're reading right now. We're always interested in uh, building up our library. In the meantime, uh, thank you so much for listening. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. Uh, we've also got some articles on Intrepid Ed News if you want to look at those. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we will speak to you soon.